One of the biggest、uh, bugaboos of the creationists is that humans and are members of the ape family. We are closely related to chimpanzees. Our DNA is 96% similar, I believe, is the number.、Um, they don't like that. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence based perspective on important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm going to start a new series of episodes focusing on the theory of evolution and perhaps even delving a little bit into creationism. Now, this is a somewhat polarizing topic, which is why I'm interested in covering it. Now, just a caveat to start I'm a physicist, I'm not a biologist. But I have taken a couple genetics courses many years ago as part of my undergraduate education because genetics is really cool. And I'm interested in what it has to say about our history. You can check out my original episode on debating creationists. It's been very popular. And because of that, I thought, wow, okay, well, that's, there's obviously a, a group of people out there that are interested in this. So, so here I go. I'm just going to dive in. Now, I avidly followed the evolution versus creationism debates long ago、um, on news groups, on talk.origins.、Um, my impression from the whole, the whole thing was that the creationists didn't really have a single scientific theory, but rather a single hypothesis, which was God did it. And the methods that They thought God did it, were as numerous as the creationists. There was no single unifying theory. There was a bunch of Bible stories, and they were trying to, some of them were trying to reinterpret scientific knowledge to support the historicity of these Bible stories. My assessment is that it has no cohesion and no predictive power. It's, it's more of a, a reason to stop investigating. God did it, stop looking. The predictions one might think of that would support special creation are mostly disproven by evolution and the evidence that has been gathered from evolution. For example, spontaneous generation has never been observed. They've done experiments. It doesn't happen. There is no ongoing creation as far as we can tell. I want to, in these series of podcasts, expose the positions on both sides of the issue. Give you some exposure to what the creationists think, and especially give you insight into the science of evolution and how it is the one organizing principle of modern biology through which no other thing in biology makes sense without it. it it's the foundational principle. Now, I'm a bit hesitant to interview creationists on the podcast and give them a pedestal because they really are. Mainly searching for、uh, converts. Creationism is a continuous spectrum. Now, there are people that are、um, young earth creationists, which are, which are basically biblical literalists. They believe that the Bible is a science textbook, that Genesis actually happened. It, Bishop Usher went through the genealogies in the Old Testament and worked out that the earth is only 6,000 years old. It was created on a Saturday afternoon or something like that, 6,000 years ago. That's one extreme. 
very few people believe that. The other extreme, of course, is a much more difficult uh, position to disprove and is perfectly consistent with science in that God perhaps fine-tuned the constants of the universe and let it go with the Big Bang and uh, sit, sat back and has been watching it ever since. The majority of creationist arguments, as I've experienced them, are basically theistic anti-evolution. And what I mean by that is they don't like naturalistic explanations. They want to have theistic explanations of the science. So they try to poke holes in the science and cast doubt on the entire enterprise of biology. At best, in my opinion, this is not good theology. It leads to a god of the gaps. There is no competing scientific theory of creationism, I, I guess is what I'm trying to tell you. So what is evolution? It's not survival of the fittest. It's more like success of the best adapted. So to get a little flavor for the science to you, I'm going to try to give you a brief intro to genetics from my perspective. Uh, and hopefully uh, when I get to, to some interviews, we'll, we'll correct any of my misconceptions as well. Uh, so I'm not saying that I'm the authority on this, but I'm somewhat educated and I followed this for a long time and, I, and I'm able to read the papers and uh, understand what they're saying. So I want to try and bring that to you in this series of, of podcasts. So intro to genetics, the modern definition of evolution that you'll find in a genetics textbook is defined as a change in the frequency of gene variants in your DNA or alleles as they're called in a population over generations. And that seems very, uh, very easy to understand. The frequency of genes are going to change. And the, one of the leading contenders for that is natural selection as introduced by Charles Darwin in his origin of the species. Now, the original Darwinistic theory of evolution has great explanatory power, but it is not the modern theory of evolution. The modern theory of evolution has been expanded, extended over the intervening centuries since Darwin's uh, publication. At the time of Darwin, genetics wasn't a field of science. DNA had not been discovered. The fact of evolution that Darwin was trying to explain in Origin of the Species with his theory of natural selection was based on observations of the fossil record and looking at fossils through the geological time, seeing they went from the present complex to much more simple as they went down in the geologic column. And this is, if you play it backwards, is a record of descent with modification. So there's a fact, the observed fact that was tried to be explained and so there's the, the, the fossil record and the plethora of species that we see in our present day. How do we explain them? Descent with modification is basically natural selection. And a prediction of this theory is that there must be some sort of heritable code, genetic code, which describes how organisms uh, are built and how they come to fruition. 
And this code must be uh, able to mutate over time. And there, there has to be some sort of element of randomness that changes the genetic code as generations progress. And so the, predict, the discovery of DNA is actually a prediction of Darwin's theory of natural selection. And as a result of his discovery, Darwin actually proposed universal common descent. Perhaps all, and he, here, here's, what, here's what he said, we do not know all the possible transitional gradations between the simplest and the most perfect organs. It cannot be pretended that we know all the varied means of distribution during the long lapse of years, or that we know how imperfect the geological record is. Grave as these several difficulties are, in my judgment, they do not overthrow the theory of descent from a few created forms with subsequent modification. As always, if you're interested in my content, please hit like. Please share it with your friends. Give me your comments. Any suggestions you have for this, for this series of podcasts, uh, post them on my Facebook group at The Rational View. And come visit my webpage at uh, therationalview.ca. Love to see you there. So what do current active creationists espouse? What theories do they espouse? The leading creationist theory, uh, replaced the word creationism in all of their textbooks, is now called intelligent design. And it, it avoids uh, mentioning God because of certain laws in the U.S. of teaching God in the science tech uh, classroom. So it's now intelligent design. And proponents claim that certain features of the universe and of living things are best explained by an intelligent cause, not an undirected process such as natural selection. This is basically an argument from incredulity. Intelligent design presents two main arguments against evolutionary explanations. They're called irreducible complexity and specified complexity, asserting that certain biological and informational features of living things are too complex to be the result of natural selection. The premise that evidence against evolution constitutes evidence for design, however, is a false dichotomy. Yes, you can easily poke holes in details of science. This is how science progresses. To say that that's evidence that God did it is, again, a God of the gaps. You need, um, you need not set up these false dichotomies. So, getting back to the basics. For those of you who don't know, DNA is the genetic code that's passed on uh, through generations that basically is... It consists of a string of proteins, uh, which code uh, for making new proteins. It's a string of, they call base pairs. Each DNA, uh, the DNA inside each of us, contains billions of base pairs on uh, several chromosomes, 23 chromosomes, that make up our genetic code. 99% of the genome seems to be random gibberish from how we understand uh, that genes are encoded into proteins in the cell. Only 1% of the genome is actually made into proteins in your cell. The rest seems to be random gibberish. 
There are about 30,000 sections in the genome, in the human genome, called genes. Individual genes have from a few hundred to even a couple million base pairs coding them. And each base pair, uh, each three base pairs, codes for a protein. And uh, this is translated in the cellular machinery to make the proteins that build our bodies. So there's, there's your one-minute uh, introduction to genetics. So here's the interesting thing, is that Genetics has really exploded as a field since the Human Genome Project uh, came on the field. The, the ability of biologists to um, use computers and to quickly uh, sequence the genomes of species has opened up a huge and fertile uh, investigation into evolution, into our evolutionary theory. And we can now look at it in a, in a very statistical way by looking at patterns uh, between in the DNA of extant species that if we know through the fossil record, they should be related through a common ancestor. We can look at similarities in their genetic codes and actually verify the findings of the fossil record. The predictions of these observations from the fossil record can be verified in the genomes. And this is really interesting. And this has spawned several fields. So let me give you some teasers here about genetic evidence for evolution. So one of the biggest uh, bugaboos of the creationists is that humans and are members of the ape family. We are closely related to chimpanzees. Our DNA is 96% similar, I believe, is the number. Um, they don't like that. But it's a fact. In fact, we can look, we can compare the genomes of the apes with humans' genomes, and the apes have 24 chromosomes, humans have 23. And it turns out that human chromosome number two looks like two ape chromosomes fused together. And in fact, human chromosome number two Normally, a chromosome has just one centromere, which, which occurs in the center of the chromosome. It's a certain a particular code in the center of the chromosome, which is used in the reproduction um, of, of, of our genome as we pass it on. Normally, a chromosome has just one centromere, but in chromosome 2 of humans, there are remnants of a second centromere. And this, of course, is what you would expect if the... If at at some point, uh, the ape genome fused uh, to make this particular chromosome 2. What else do we see in this chromosome 2 of humans? We see the presence of vestigial telomeres. Telomeres are repeating sequences on the end of chromosomes that uh, keep them from unraveling effectively. And we find that there are remnants of, of these inside chromosome 2 as though these two ape chromosomes were were fused in some sort of ancestral human. Uh, so here we have evidence that the genomes are very similar and, and one has progressed from the other. But there's a more a more telling a more telling thing than that. And it's called endogenous retroviruses. 
Now, that's a big word. What does that mean? Retroviruses are viruses which take their, when they infect your cells, they inject their DNA into your DNA and it splices itself into the DNA of your cells so that your cells make copies of the virus. Wow, right? That's, that's kind of scary stuff. But it happens all the time. And sometimes it happens to an egg cell or a sperm cell that they get a retrovirus in their genetic code and then they fertilize and create an embryo and that embryo grows up to be a human. And then that human has now the virus in its genetic code or any species, not just humans. So there are roughly 10 million sites where retroviruses are like uh, are commonly inserted into our genomes, 10 million. And it turns out there have been studies of a particular uh, retrovirus, which is very common in the genome. There's about 200 copies of this viral code in the human genome that have, uh, over years, uh, become spread throughout the population and are now common. Everyone has copies of this virus in their DNA, about 200 copies to be exact. And between humans and chimps, each of these 200 endogenous retroviruses happen at the same positions on the same chromosomes. I think uh, humans have six uh, endogenous retroviruses that chimpanzees don't have, and chimpanzees have three that humans don't have. But then there are 200 of them that are in identical positions. Do you know what the odds of that are? Out of 10 million possible positions that these viruses could have showed up in the genomes if we were unrelated to chimpanzees. That's one followed by a lot of zeros. But that's, so that's very strong evidence, right? That, that's... that's Crazy strong evidence. But there's more. Uh, genetics is so interesting, and I, I love to share this with you, and I'm hoping that we can talk to um, professionals to get a lot more about this. Um, there's been, uh, in addition to new genetic material being added, over time, some functional genes lose their functionality due to mutations in the genes. And maybe we don't need them. For example, there's a gene that makes vitamin C. Humans and apes, in, the, in humans and apes, that gene has been uh, mutated and doesn't work. We don't make vitamin C. And the same mutation is in both of our genomes. Both the apes and the humans have the same mutation in the vitamin C gene. Whereas, say, guinea pigs, for example, have a different mutation in that gene. And then some organisms actually produce vitamin C. Plants. Oranges. So, one very interesting thing that people do, uh, scientists do, uh, or have figured that they can do, is, let's think about this now. We have the genomes, we can sequence the genomes of species, and we can do statistical studies on them. And we can actually look at genes of related species. And we can look at the codes of these genes and look at the differences between them, where they've mutated. 
and we can predict the codes of their last common ancestor by comparing these these codes of the extant species. And people have done this. And it's amazing. Using the sequences along the tips of what they call the phylogenetic tree or the tree of life, it's possible to determine the amino acid sequence of the ancestral gene of whatever group that you're studying. So if you look at a particular gene in, in all these species, you can, you can predict what the gene in their common, last common ancestor looked like. And they can sequence it and they can make it in the lab and test its function. I don't think this would work if evolution weren't true. The number of mutations between an ancestral gene and a daughter gene is correlated with time. Over vast periods of time, more mutations will build up. Reconstructed ancestral genes code for working proteins. That's unexplainable if evolution is not true. So what have, what have people done? People have looked at um, steroid receptor proteins uh, amongst several extant species and demonstrated that the earliest steroid receptors likely bound to estrogen. That's an interesting observation. Let me go to more interesting observations. Scientists successfully resurrected ancestral rhodopsin proteins. <clears throat> rhodopsin is a uh, compound in the eye which absorbs light, uh, allowing you to see. They, took, they looked at the rhodopsin proteins in a group of birds, and they found that the dinosaur rhodopsin protein worked well in dim light. They made it. They made an ancestral rhodopsin protein from the ancestor, <clears throat> the common ancestor of these birds, and it worked. It slightly shifted to the red from modern birds and uh, good for uh, detecting dim light. That's amazing. This is, this is Jurassic Park kind of stuff. Another study actually um, resurrected proteins from bacteria, from all different types of bacteria, and they tried to infer the temperature of the environment of the last common ancestor of bacteria. Of all the bacteria in the world, they could determine from this protein what temperature, or tried to infer what temperature the environment of the Earth was when this occurred. It's truly amazing what we can learn from evolution and from and you can see how nothing of this makes sense without evolution so thank you for listening to my introduction to evolutionary biology or evolutionary genetics i hope you enjoyed listening uh it's a bit of an introduction 
I've got some interviews I'm going to line up for this. If you have any suggestions you'd like to give me, please uh, drop a comment on the podcast. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, I hope you like it too. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.